Hey everyone, welcome to the first ever episode of the Nuts and Volts podcast. We're a podcast about modern energy markets, and we're super excited to be here, and frankly, that you're listening. I'm your host, Richard Reedstrom, and for our podcast, I'll be joined by Samir Salasia and Vivek Pato. Guys, want to say hello? Hi, I'm Samir. I'm one of the founders of Molecule Software. We're a Houston-based software company that makes ETRM, uh, CTRM software, which is basically software for energy trading. Hi, my name is Vivek Batuk. I'm one of the founders at Broadpeak. We're a New York City-based software company. Our focus in the energy world is all about trade data plumbing, moving trades from one system to the next. We got this podcast together because, well, we know a little bit about energy markets and we wanted to share what we know with the world and we wanted to get a good discussion going. Uh, we haven't seen a ton of really great discussions in our space and we had this whole fancy plan for a podcast that we were going to do this week talking about how megawatts work and somehow tying them into Bitcoin prices and well, something happened. That's right. And I think my favorite part of this is Vivek lives up in New York. And he was actually here as of, I think, Friday last week in Texas. So fun times here. <laughs> That's right, Richard. I braved all the COVID testing, et cetera, et cetera. Flew my family down for a week of vacation to see family I hadn't seen in a couple of years. Thought I'd enjoy the balmy Texas February weather in Houston. And we were faced with huddling by a fire and blankets. I'll say I'm also equally as excited as Samir to participate in this. One of the things that's interesting to me is helping people understand where power comes from and, and where energy comes from. My background is as a chemical engineer. And so I find the, the industry fascinating. One of the anecdotal stories I was telling Samir before this as a motivation for me was I was once in a yoga class a few years ago and the yoga instructor was trying to cater to the class on a warm summer day in New York City, where some people wanted the air conditioning and some people liked fresh air. So she decided to turn on the air conditioning to make some people happy and then open the window to make other people happy. And you can understand my horror as an engineer going, are you kidding me? You're, you're burning coal or natural gas or whatever, however we're getting the energy, we'll glance into that. And then you're just shoveling it out the window. On one side, we're talking about <laughs> green earth and reduction of carbon footprints. And the other side, we're just burn, burn, burn. And there's just a lack of connection between when you flip a light switch, how that power just magically turns out light bulb. Isn't that amazing that like <laughs> that you press a button and like a whole world lights up? So you talked a little bit about your background as a chemical engineer. I actually have a degree in public policy from the University of Michigan. And I remember my very first day in policy school, they had this, actually imported a professor to come talk to us about, about writing public policy. And his statement that he gave us, budding new entrants into this graduate program was, the perfect policy will never get passed. And if you bright-eyed, bushy-tailed people come up with the perfect policy, by the time it gets through both houses of Congress, and the executive branch, it will look nothing like what you came up with. <laughs> Enjoy your degree program. <laughs> <laughs> so in fact, I think that actually brings us to our next point here. We talked a little bit about what happened last week, and I know it's been in the news for a while at this point, but you guys have such a unique perspective that I think us diving into it makes a whole lot of sense here. First, I thought we might take a look at the generation mix and what that looks like here in Texas. 
I know our governor, Greg Abbott, earlier in the week went on a local interview here in Texas and talked about how we had different types of generation that froze. And then he later on that same day went on a national broadcast and talked about only one type of generation that froze over. So I thought that could maybe be a good jumping off point, especially with the different versions of this floating around out there. Samir, Vivek, what do you guys think? Yeah, so in the US, we, I mean, we're a big country, 350 million people. We gotta make power as best as we can from a bunch of different sources. And I mean, we use nuclear, we use coal, we use wind, solar, hydro, as in dams, and, and, and lots more for our electricity generation, but those are the big ones. But a lot of times when you're thinking about electricity generation, it devolves into sort of a tribal debate about green versus not green or, or hydrocarbon versus not hydrocarbon. But actually, a lot of these different generation sources have a number of different attributes, all of which are important to us. How quickly do they ramp up and down? When are they available? How much electricity do they generate? My favorite example is a nuclear reactor. Those are typically used for baseload generation which really means they're super stable because, well, I mean, the way you speed up or down a nuclear plant would be to, to pull the rods in and out of the, out of the reactor. You don't want to yank those things out of a reactor, do you? <laughs> Good point, Samir. I mean, I, I, the, the operative word there you used was a baseload. And so to think about that for, to unpack that a bit for, for the listeners, there's a certain minimum amount of, of supply of power that, that we have to have because the demand usually doesn't go lower than that. So if you think about power during the day that we have like peak power load and in terms of most people are turning things on, turning lights on and, and using appliances, et cetera. And at night we have sort of off peak power, broadly speaking. And so even when the load is low at off peak times, there's certain minimum footprint and nuclear really does well at, at providing that, that minimal load. Absolutely. But, and, and then what we've seen in the US over the last, what, 10, 20 years has been coal, which was, I don't know, maybe a third or half of the uh, power generation just going through the floor. I mean, we've seen people playing hot potato with coal plants, but it definitely does seem that gas has overtaken it, hasn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, there was a big talk uh, along with becoming more green and reducing our carbon footprint to get rid of coal because it's a very dirty, you know, fuel source. What's interesting is that natural gas has overtaken coal in terms of our generation mix. We use more nat gas to produce electricity nationally than we do coal now. And interestingly, that really has little to do with sort of green initiatives. It has more to do with fracking, ironically. When we fracked in the ground for oil, one of the things that came out as a byproduct was a plethora of natural gas, the point where the United States is the predominant supplier of natural gas in the world. And as a result, it's really cheap. So the prices are at the floor and utilities and power producers are happy to use that and swap that out for coal. So market-based forces ironically are, are at the genesis of reducing the carbon footprint in terms of our power production. Fun term for people who are in the industry is that there's a really common way to think about power and gas volumes as they relate to each other coming out of a power plant. And it's called a heat rate. That's just the rate at which you turn the gas into electricity. Back to you, Richard. Cool, so we've been talking a lot about how we generate our power, but that doesn't really take into account what happens next. How does it get to our homes, by which mechanisms, etc. I think maybe next we need to talk about how power is stored and how it flows. 
how power stored the great the great the simple answer for that is from roll vivek <laughs> it's not <laughs> it's not so power I, I think of this in terms of da the data lens so power is is a streaming sort of energy source in other words as it's produced it needs to be transmitted and sent somewhere which is why when you measure power, you measure it in units of time. So people who are familiar in this industry would think about a megawatt versus a megawatt hour. So in other words, the unit of energy over a uh, unit of time, because you consume it over time, which is very different than sort of barrels of oil or MMBTUs of natural gas, which is a volumetric unit. So as a result, power is measured in kilowatt hours because it really can't be stored at grid scale. And so from an economic perspective, then that means that if it can't be stored, supply and demand must equal at all points in time, at all moments, and they are balanced in real time all throughout the day. You know, if Richard goes in and plugs in a million hair dryers, some generation has to turn on and like, you know, lumps of coal got to be thrown into a power plant to make sure those hair dryers stay on and don't take the whole grid down. Man, that's really amazing to think about because most of us don't think about that when we're, you know, leaving our fridge open, trying to figure out what it is we're going to have for a snack. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Better hope we're not all doing it at the exact same moment. <laughs> uh, a lot of large numbers and such. Right. Okay. So then we've also heard a lot about uh, a friendly company called ERCOT over the uh, last couple weeks. I thought it might be interesting to to, to take an express train through who ERCOT is and what other companies are like it. So in a lot of places in the United States, if you want to get your power, you get it from your city. You pay nine cents, maybe 12 cents a kilowatt hour, which translates to 90 to 120 bucks a megawatt hour for power, pretty much no matter how much you use. And the city handles the lines, they handle your billing, they handle procuring the power, they handle making the power and everything else. But in Texas and some other markets throughout the US, we have almost a fully deregulated market where there are different types of companies at different parts of the chain. So in Texas, for example, we have an REP, who's the company you buy the electricity from. You have a wholesaler, who's the company that sells the electricity to the REP. You have a generator who sells the electricity to the wholesaler. You have the lines company who owns the natural monopoly of the electric lines and poles and meters and stuff in your city. And then you have the ISO. The ISO is sort of the traffic cop that tells everybody what to do when they're the ones balancing the million hair dryers that Richard clearly plugged in a few minutes ago and, <laughs> and telling some power plant they need to throw some coal into the burner. <clears throat> so in Texas, which is a deregulated market, we have a fractured set of all of those companies, but the ISO's job, and in this case, in Texas, ERCOT's job is to be the traffic cop and hopefully to help keep the lights on. Gotcha. So. If I'm not in Texas, I'm listening to all of this and it sounds just needlessly complex to me. <laughs> so, so so if I'm not in Texas, why why would I care about this? Or if I am in Texas, why is this the better way of doing things? 
It's a good question, Richard. I, th I think from the perspective of Texas <clears throat> or anybody looking at deregulators as the way to go, the thought is if all of those, if that entire supply chain is managed by a single entity, a utility company, that utility company uh, has a monopoly on it and tends to be paid a slight margin above whatever their cost base is. So in other words, it they say, hey, plus. Yeah, exactly. It costs us X to supply power to this population, and we're going to make, let's just say, 3% margin above that. The incentive from the outsider's view is like, hey, you're not really incentivized for efficiency. Actually, you're perversely incentivized to spend a lot of money because you're going to make a percentage above whatever you spend. And so from a politician's perspective, you start to look and say, wait, actually, if we fracture the supply chain into a bunch of differentiated entities, which focus on each piece of it, they'll focus on optimizing each of that piece and will generally drive power prices lower. Sounds like we really optimized it, huh, in Texas. So like with, <laughs> with anything, there's a limit to what you can do and there's consequences, right? So as, as we talked about at the start, the answers are always somewhere in between the extremes. And so it's not really about regulated versus deregulated. I think the, you know, what we're seeing is maybe the answer is where is the line of demarcation and, and what, to what extent should things be deregulated or regulated? That brings up a great point, Vivek. If we're looking at all of this that we've just been talking about, it's all been very informative, but if there were maybe one or two things that might make sense to look at either doing differently in Texas or elsewhere or otherwise, what do you guys think makes the most sense to highlight to people? I, I, I would say like, so just to, to clear everybody's cash on, on things they've heard, no, undoubtedly listeners would be all over whatever social media platform they use and all, if not all of them taking in sound bites and attempts by folks with positions to just sort of point the finger at one single thing. And like with anything that's complicated, adults look at things in the gray areas of life and not in the black or white. And so that, that probably is the case here, right? You saw people saying, hey, it's windmills. And other people saying, eh, this is what you get with climate change. Yeah, probably a little bit of everything. I, I think if you come down to it and sort of look, unpack it all, there's a couple of things that stick out to me. One is sort of winterization of facilities in Texas, right? So obviously Texas, at least in Southern Texas, you don't really see cold weather that much. So there, there isn't really a sense of, hey, we should go spend a bunch of money to make sure we can withstand temperatures that you know, likelihood of seeing is very, very low. Because like with anything, we could spend that money on, on other areas that we need within the state. So lack of winterization was definitely a culprit here. Should you winterize in Texas or not? I don't know. I mean, what are your thoughts there, Samir? Yeah, so I got tempted to read the comment section of the Houston Chronicle sometime last oh, God, week. And no. <laughs> gutsy, gutsy man reading comments. No. <laughs> <laughs> My faith in humanity uh, it, it, it was actually not compromised this time. Because there's a guy there who, who was actually talking about how he had been at one of the companies. He, he was a project manager at one of the companies that was building, I don't remember if it was gas plants or wind turbines or something, because they all failed. And, and he said, hey, listen, I was the guy who got asked, hey, manufacturer says they want you to pay $50,000 a turbine extra to winterize the thing. Should we do it? And he says, well, I went and looked at the Texas rules, mm. thought about it, 
they're not in the Texas rules. And if I do it, none of my other competitors are going to do it. So I'm going to look like the chump that spent my investors money needlessly. And maybe it'll pay off in sometime in the next 10 years if the prices spike to 9,000, but maybe it won't. No, not going to do it. I mean, and that made a lot of sense to me. I, I did. I don't like the outcome, but it definitely made a lot mm -hmm. of sense to me. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> it looks like, I mean, to me, that's the construct of a fully deregulated market, right? Without that incentive. And to, to be clear to the folks on the phone, I, I grew up in Alberta and Western Canada where minus 40 is a routine and, <laughs> and you, we don't lose power every year. So is it possible to winterize to this facility? Clearly. Absolutely, that's doable. Should Texas spend the money to do it? I, I don't know. I'm not looking at the budgets, but the capabilities are there. So the other big thing that uh, that we've that probably insiders in the industry have been talking a lot about is something called a capacity market. So clearly, what happened in Texas is that we didn't have reserve capacity that was ready to go when when the demand skyrocketed. We didn't have enough, and the existing capacity went offline. Most other regions of the country apparently have what's called a capacity market in which spare capacity is paid to simply exist and to be ready to go. It seems like if we're the odd one out here, maybe that's something we ought to be considering. That one to me sticks out because it, it, it's absolutely exactly what you said, right? The ISO's responsibilities to match, help, help the system match supply and demand. So if you look at the, the demand here, it far you know, outpaced, I think the worst case scenario, but supply really was a lot lower than they had expected due to lack of winterization. So arguably um, a capacity market, which is really just an option for the system to say, hey, you guys stand by in case we need you. We're going to pay you a slight amount for that option. And then you would have been able to sort of facilitate the, the gap between supply and demand. Now, to be clear, it's not always that simple. If many of those facilities that were sitting in that capacity reserve to, to be ready on standby, we're also subject to being frozen, then arguably that would have failed as well. So it's not, again, <laughs> like with anything, it's not simple, right? But capacity markets generally are healthy markets that do function in other ISOs, like in the Northeast, so that when there is a supply demand imbalance, there's actually a natural market solution by which you, you bridge the gap. Okay, so we just talked about quite a bit about what might happen in order to help combat this in the future. What are some of the impacts that might exist moving forward here after last week? Uh, Samir, Ravek, do you have any thoughts on that? I would forecast people pointing fingers all over the place first. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just be clear. It's I think that's already happened, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're going to see more and more of it, right? People are going to jump on it to use this to fuel whatever biases or positions they have on on more coal, more gas, more nuclear, more windmills, more solar. Again, just guard yourself and, and shoot for the nuance. So one of the things that, that we're hearing in the market is that politicians are saying, hey, look, you may not have to pay these expensive power prices. The, the person who got stuck with the $16,000 power, power bill this month isn't going to have to pay it. Okay, well, that's really interesting because that means the one company that passed on all of those expensive power prices to their customers, I think they were like 27,000 meters or something like that is whatever. That means they're not going to get any money. Right. And if that's the case, they still have to pay the money up the chain. So somebody else, let's say they go out of business. The next person up the chain is also not going to get the money. And, and then I'm starting to hear in sort of hushed tones throughout the industry, 
that maybe the prices won't stick. Maybe ERCOT could change the prices that printed last week at 9,000 to something else. That's plain nuts to me. <laughs> plain nuts. If, if, if you construct a deregulated market and you say, great, go for it, folks, to retroactively adjust pricing seems, seems strange to me. There might be a different way to to prevent sort of failure of some of those entities or deal with the fact that somebody's not going to get paid in that, in that supply chain, but retroactive price changes just really confuses the nerd in me. <laughs> it would be like changing stock prices in the stock market for last week. Yeah, even GameStop <laughs> didn't get that. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think the answer to your question, Richard, is we're not sure, but most certainly they're not going to do nothing. And, and the GameStop reference is relevant here, right? Like people got into gritty thinking wholesale is cheaper than retail. That sounds great. Except the whole benefit of having those retail producers is they sort of give you a set price and then they manage the fact that there's a fluctuating cost on their end, right? <clears throat> and so you gave the benefit of a stable price. It seems interesting to have wholesale price, but when you don't know, understand how wholesale electricity markets work, you're signing up for something that really you don't have the ability to understand. And it is very much like Robin Hooders getting into a margin only options account, right? By default, they're really not understanding the downside of, of what they've just signed up for. Right, so the difference between wholesale and retail pricing for electricity is that, right? I mean, it's about, it sounds like it's about 50% because I think the gritty average cost is like five cents and the average cost in Texas is about 10 cents. That difference is, is probably then the risk management of the price, which makes a lot of sense. And, and then to add to that, there's a really good uh, article in The Economist last week about Texas's power prices overall being something like two thirds of what they are elsewhere in the country. Well, I wonder where the rest of that third of the price <laughs> goes. <laughs> Perhaps jackets for wind turbines. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. Most certainly it's worth paying the option to have some capacity. You would think, right? To wrap this all up here, some of this has been a bit like the inside baseball take on what happened last week. I know I've had a really fun time chatting with Samir and Vivek about all this. We really look forward to diving into some more topics in the future here. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Any final thoughts to share, guys? Yeah, sure. So I would say tune in next time for more information on Vivek's yoga classes, uh, possibly the ability to go back in time using 1.21 gigawatts of power. 1.21 gigawatts, if you don't remember that. Um... <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> 80s, beautiful 80s film reference. And, and maybe I'll take you through my favorite type of hair dryer that I plug in. <laughs> All million of them. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time.